Episode 8 of the Believe and Follow podcast. Welcome. This week we're shifting the focus a little to consider those who are not particularly religious. I've heard people from time to time say things like, well, I'm spiritual, just not religious. And so I want to explore the wisdom or viability of this approach to God. I invite anyone who puts themselves in this category to come on and discuss it with me. Email me at james at believeandfollow.org and let's talk. With this concept in mind, last Wednesday I started a discussion of some verses from the Gospel of Matthew 24 and the second epistle of Peter, chapter 3. There's a thing that always gets me when people say they've crunched the numbers and they figured out what day it was Jesus was going to be returning. <laughs> and it always amazes me that anyone listens to that. Because Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, right, even he doesn't know. Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And then he goes, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Whereas in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware till the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. But this does relate nicely to Second Peter 3, because Noah had been told by God that there was going to be a flood. And Noah spent a hundred years building this ark. People had to be aware of what was going on. I'm sure Noah didn't keep it quiet, but the point is people weren't paying attention. So when the flood came, they were taken by surprise because what didn't they do when they heard Noah saying, God told me there was going to be a flood? Well, they probably didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. Right, exactly. exactly. So if they didn't believe it, then, you know, then, then they weren't concerned. If you look at Second Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1, Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he's wanting to stir them up, wanting to encourage them, wanting to make them not be complacent. Because you're stirring somebody up to say, you know, this stuff you're supposed to be doing, I want to stir you up to do the things you're supposed to be doing. And by way of reminder, I'm reminding you what 
the message of Jesus through his apostles that was delivered to you, and I'm reminding you of the predictions that the, that the um, prophets made. And then he says, knowing that, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I remember studying years ago about different models of the universe and different theories of physics. There was a fancy word for that. They called it the, the steady state theory. The idea that things have always been the same and things always will be the same. Is that called uniformitarianism? <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Uniformitarian, I like that. That sounds even fancier than steady state theory. And that's how it seems, because the sun comes up every morning at a predictable time and sets in the evening at a predictable time, and the earth seems rock-stable. Okay, so things have always been this way, and things always will be this way. That's kind of what the scoffers are saying. Eh, what are you talking about, this coming of Christ? Things have always been the same, they're always going to be the same. And then he says in verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What Peter's saying is that really things have been always in a state of change. Things started a certain way, and then God formed everything to a certain place, and then he destroyed it all by water. That's a change. It isn't that everything's been going the same since existence began. There was a big change when the flood came. And then by the same word now, the existence that we see now is held over for destruction by fire. This idea that this steady state theory, or the word that you used, Claude, uniformitarianism. Uniformitarian. Unif say it again. Uniformitarianism. Unif uniformitarianism. Okay. That this idea that things have always been the same and will always be the same, science has learned that the universe is in a state of change even more than we had realized in the past. You know, and that's what Peter's saying too. The universe is in a constant state of change. Things are always changing. And a big change that's going to happen is when Christ comes back and it's all going to be destroyed. You know, there's an argument that people make about the inspiration of the Bible. What Peter is saying, he's debunking the scoffers who are putting forth an argument that's false. And Peter's understanding, he has to have gotten from inspiration about the fact that the universe is always changing. Because Peter was a fisherman. He was an unschooled guy. As far as he would know, just from observation, his own observation, he would agree maybe with the scoffers if he didn't have information from elsewhere. And the information from elsewhere is by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and this is a verse that's so often misapplied, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. 
that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Paraphrase that verse for me. What does that verse mean? Put that verse in your own words. What would that verse be in your Time own doesn't words? matter to God. Time doesn't matter to God. That's a good one. Dad, how would you say it, Claude? So God, there's no difference between a thousand years and a day. Claude <laughs> <laughs> is literal. You better reword it by saying exactly what it says. I th- but that's right. But what does it mean then to say that there's no difference to God between a thousand years and a day? Time is irrelevant to God. Time is meaningless. God exists outside of this creation, of the physical world. And time is a construct of this physical world. That's another thing that we learn by science, right? Those of you that have been acquainted with Einstein's theories, which seem to have been pretty much proved to be correct. All our friends in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I think, would testify that Einstein knew what he was talking about. Because one of the corollaries of the steady state theory people or the uniformitarianism uniformitarianism people is that they talk and the same thing with people who are pre-Einstein, Newtonian physics that time is a constant in the beginning when God created the world the clock started ticking and it ticked at the same rate on day one as it is today as it will tomorrow of course we know that's not true passage of time is relevant on a number of levels. Sometimes we talk to people about the days of creation and how long it it took God to create everything and talks about the periods of time that were discussed as one day as referring to a rotation of the earth on its axis. Well, how do you know how long that took to happen in those days? You know, we don't know. But... We know that the longest day in the year this year is longer than it was the longest day in the year last year. So the Earth is slowing in its rotation in a measurable way that we can measure at this time. But then there's also time dilation. The faster you go, you go fast, what happens to time? It slows down, right? The faster you go, the slower time goes. What happens for you? Say what? For you. For you, right. For you, right. You you experience time differently the faster you go. And this was proved by satellites and orbit. And also, though, the further the distance you get away from gravity, what happens to time? The further you get away from gravity, it speeds up. Right, exactly. Because in a black hole, time slows down. Right. And this has all been proven. They compare the time, you know, you've got a clock on the International Space Station, you've got clocks on the um, GPS satellites. They have to adjust them to account for time dilation. Which they do, and they understand, but because of these principles that Einstein figured out. So who knows at what rate time was passing when God was doing all this creating? Just like Peter's saying here in Second Peter chapter three that the universe is in a constant state of change. Everything's in a state of change, including the passing of time. We have no idea how time passed 
back in the days of Noah or back in the days of Adam and Eve. We have no idea how time passed. I could go on about that. When people debate how old the universe is, it's a meaningless thing. Because you're debating quantities that you don't know what size they were, what size those quantities were. So he says, so do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You get the idea from some of the writings in the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth that they were concerned that Jesus was going to return like any minute or maybe return in their lifetimes or, or very, very soon. But you see here that Peter is allowing for the fact that a lot of time is going to go by and people are going to be scoffing and saying, when is he coming back? I thought you guys said he was coming back. When's he coming back? Everything seems to be going the way it's been going. hundred years are going to pass by. A thousand years are going to pass by. Still he doesn't come back. But how is it, though, something that is more immediate? In other words, let me close the question this way. How much time do each of us have? We don't know. We don't know, exactly. <laughs> time is short. And that's why it's counterproductive for someone to say, I've predicted when Jesus is going to be returning. Because you're like, he's not going to return for another couple of hundred years, then I can go forth, I can do evil till then. People are going to be tempted to think that. But none of us knows how long we have. So for each of us, the time is short. We only have our lives to get right with God. Peter says that later in this chapter. We'll get to that. So the time really is short. And no matter when you think Jesus is going to return, that's the wisdom in what Jesus said there in Matthew 24, that no one knows when I'm coming back. So what should you do then? If you don't know when the thief is going to be breaking in, what are you going to do? Watch. Watch and wait. You have to be constantly diligent. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's exactly what Peter means with this, right? The day of the Lord is going to be sneaky. He's saying exactly what Jesus was saying in uh, Matthew 24, wherever it was, verse 36. Anyway, all right, back to this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and goodness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, what sort of people ought you to be? And then he kind of answers his own question. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Well, that's what it is. The sort of people you ought to be are people who are living lives of holiness and godliness. Therefore, here's his conclusion. Beloved, since you are waiting for these, 
be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters which he speaks in them of these matters. There are some of these that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So he's talking about all these fantastical things that are going to happen, about how the earth is going to be destroyed by fire and, and such. But the conclusion of it is, what kind of people should you be? Well, you should be people that are remembering the promise of God and living lives of godliness and holiness. Some people like to focus on the destruction. Some people like to read Revelation because it's kind of like an episode of Star Wars, or like a couple of episodes of Star Wars. And they want to focus on all the strong and drunk. The conclusion that therefore is the kind of people you should be are the kind of people that God wants you to be. Jesus uses the figure in Matthew 24. As time goes on, the servant who was left in charge of the house, where is that? Therefore, in verse 42, I'm in Matthew 24 now, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. I'll wait till Claude gets there. Matthew 24, verse 42? Yeah, I just read 42. And then now I'm 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. And that's the one that I mentioned before. Therefore, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And then he goes on to another metaphor. Who then is the faithful and wise servant who his master has set over his household to give them their food at their proper times? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, says to himself, where is this coming? He's not coming. You know, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You find that a lot going on, people misbehaving and behaving in a way that that Christ is not instructed. That's the same message that we see in Second Peter. In other words, yeah, he's coming back. How do we know he's coming back? Because he said he's coming back. You don't know when he's going to come back. So that's another reason for you to continue to be doing exactly as God has instructed. So you're prepared when he comes. Because there's not going to be any last-minute preparation. It's not going to be like, oh, okay, it seems like he's on his way. He's going to be coming like a thief. He's going to surprise you. People are going to be going about their, their business, buying and selling, being given in marriage, conducting their lives. Just nothing's going on. And then, boom. 
he's going to be here. And so there won't be any time to make any last-minute preparations. So you have to be prepared. You have to be living your lives in such a way that when he comes, you're all ready to go. Yeah, this reminds me of a, of a story I, I heard from my aunt. Um, you know, this was back during, took place back, I guess, during the Depression, that um, she used to give her son a nickel to play a number each day. Right. And instead of playing the number, he, he, he spent the money, and one day the number hit. <coughs> and so she went down to collect the money, and they didn't. And that, that's when she found out that her son had been spending the money. <laughs> that's exactly it, you know. You know, the number's not going to be. I'm going to go buy myself some candy. And, uh, and that worked fine until it didn't work. Until the number hit and then he had a problem. That's a good example. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about. Yeah, everything's fine now. This, you know, not behaving in a way that you're expecting Jesus to come is working fine right now because he hasn't come yet. What's this thing that Jesus says about weeping and gnashing of teeth? What does gnashing of teeth indicate? But that's a description of, of hell. Well, yeah, extreme frustration. Yeah. When you yeah. gnash your teeth, when you're like, and you're going to be like, why didn't I pay attention to those dimwits who used to sit at Irving Farm on Wednesday nights and talk about this stuff? Weeping and gnashing of teeth, because you can just be weeping and you can just be sad. But if you're weeping and gnashing your teeth, this is a state of extreme stress and frustration. Disappointment would be an understatement. But it's interesting in Matthew 24 how easily it's misunderstood. But the message always is, though, both in 2 Peter 3 and Matthew 24, the overall message is encouraging people to live godly, holy lives. That's the encouragement. And so, we should get about the business of finding out what God wants us to do and do it. But we have to pay attention. We can't just be, okay, I believe that God exists, but there really isn't anything I need to do about that. Who believes that God exists? Hmm? The demons, they shudder. Why do they shudder? They know that he exists, and the demons are not interested in following God's instruction. They believe, but they are not interested in following God's instructions. The demons are the ones that are aligned with Satan, and what's Satan all about? Satan is all about not following God's instructions. So that's why the demons shudder, because they've thrown in with the guy who says, yeah, I'm not going to follow God's instructions. That's why they're demons, and that's why they shudder. That's James 2. What's the verse? 18. Hmm? 19. Read it. Please. We believe that God is one. We do well. Even the demons believe. And I was going to go to Hebrews 11. Because people say, okay, I, I know that God exists, but I don't think he expects me to do anything in particular about that. 
how would you respond to someone who says that? Someone who says something like, yeah, I know that God exists, and I'm basically a good person. He's going to accept me because I'm not trying to mess anybody up. I'm not trying to steal from anybody or anything like that. God is going to accept me. What verse would you say? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God, now there are two things here, right? Must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So this, so you believe He exists, and if you believe He exists, there's a response that you make. He rewards those who seek Him. The person who just says, okay, I know He exists, and we're good. What reward can they expect to have if, if they don't seek Him? So there's two parts of it. You have to believe He exists, and you have to seek Him. What's the figure that God always uses for for people who are not seeking Him or for people who are turning away from Him? What figure did He use for the nation of Israel when they turned away from Him to idols? He called them, begins with an A and ends with adulterers. He called them an adulterous nation. He uses the figure of a husband and a wife. He uses the marriage figure because that's a close relationship that you've chosen to have with someone that if it's going to work, you have to, to give it constant attention. If you're going to have a spouse, then you're going to need to put a lot of work perhaps a lot more work than you even thought going into the arrangement, right? To, to keep the relationship close. You have to work in your relationship. You have to find out what pleases your spouse. And when the moment comes that your spouse is displeased, you have to carefully find out what happened. <laughs> what I do. Or like Ray Charles, what I say. <laughs> so if God's looking to have that kind of a relationship, what would be a good verse to bring up this point of it being like a marriage relationship, our relationship with God? What verse would you go to? Ephesians chapter 5. That's where I would go. So verse 22, he's talking about husbands and wives, right? Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. And then, see, he goes back and forth. But he, he, he does kind of like metaphor switching. But it's a very interesting thing. He's not doing this by mistake. So let's go back again. So he's talking about different people, different kinds of relationships and how you should behave. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, 
because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this is an interesting verse, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. So the Apostle Paul keeps going back and forth. The example that husbands should love their wives as Christ loves the church. So Christ is the example of how much you should love your spouse, because Christ did what? He sacrificed himself. But then also, you're looking at the relationship that you have to Christ, you're his body, but the church is the body of Christ and also the bride of Christ. So the church as the bride of Christ has to pay attention to Christ just as a wife pays attention to their husband. He kind of like goes back and forth. Isn't it? Not being sloppy, he's not making a mistake. He's saying both figures kind of lean on each other to help you understand. One helps you understand the other. And they're both integral. Does that make sense? Do you get that from the passage? It's an important thing. So the person who says, okay, I know that God exists, and he doesn't expect anything from me outside of, you know, I should be the person who he wants me to be. Or he just wants me to be happy. I mean, there's a certain specificity to the relationship with God, like there's a specificity in the relationship of a husband and a wife, right? You can't just in a general sense saying, yeah, okay, I generally care about your feelings, but I'm not interested in any of the specifics. <laughs> Make sense? Questions, comments, concerns? It's not like it. We're like, yeah, I don't expect anything from you. you know, we're married, but you, know, you do whatever you want, and, and I'll do what I want. You'll be good. Everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah. How's that going to work? <laughs> Probably about how it is right now. How it is right now, exactly. How would you encourage someone to investigate more fully what God expects of them? I guess this is sort of question two of my first three questions, right? Because question one was, do you believe that God exists? And everybody says, everybody answered that question the same. I haven't run into any people lately who I've asked, do you believe that God exists? And they say, no, I don't believe He exists. Most people do. But then question two is, what does God expect from you? People who are like students of the Bible will various variations of the answer well the answer believe and follow that's what he expects that's what Hebrews 11 6 says I guess you could ask where do you get your ideas of the expectations that God has do you just get it from people you hear on the radio do you get it from a specific religion or religions aggregated together you just pick and choose you know, the things that make the most sense to you? Or do you think God even cares about us and wants anything from us? If I ask the question, what do you think God thinks about all of the vision? Well, I don't think he cares. Then the next question to ask is why? So this is just like your thing. Like, how do you figure out what God expects of you? 
Where are you getting it from? Are you getting it from just just the general environment? Like, like well, I'm, I'm following the crowd. Most people seem to do just fine, not paying a lot of attention to this God business. So I'm going to follow their example. So people who don't pay a lot of attention to what the Bible says are comfortable with just going with what the majority is, what the culture is teaching us. And the Bible teaches us what? What, what usually happens with the majority? <laughs> Not good things. Right. They're on the Exactly. How many people were saved in the time of the flood? Eight in all, right. Because everybody else didn't listen. That's the thing that Jesus says too. It's like just in the time of the flood. People are going to be going about their business as if everything was fine. And then the floodwaters came and boom. How many people made it to the promised land of that half million Jews that were counted in the original census? Two adults. Two adults, Joshua and Caleb. That's it. So, once again, not a majority. <laughs> How many righteous people were there in Sodom and Gomorrah? Less than 10, because that's where Abraham stopped. Abraham started at 50, Morgan got down to 10, and he went and destroyed the cities anyway. So there were less than 10. Once again, not a majority. So if you're in your culture and you're following what your culture is doing, chances are, it's not going to work well for you, according to the Bible. So, but if you've never read the Bible, then you're not going to be concerned about this mode where, well, I'm, only, I'm just going to follow the culture that I'm in. So, what would you say to people? If somebody says, well, I'm just doing what most of my neighbors are doing concerning paying attention to God, what's the cure for that attitude? Read the Bible. Yeah. Are you sure that they're, you know, what? most of the people are correct? Yeah, right, exactly. Well, but why, then, why do you think they're correct? I don't know. Yeah, and how would you figure out if most of those people are correct? Where are you going to get the information from God that tells you what He wants, what makes Him happy? And that's what it says, right, in Hebrews 11. It says, this is what the ancients were commended for. I mean, it just goes all the way back through history and talks about the faith of all these people. You want to know what makes God happy? He's telling you. Hebrews 11 is a great chapter because it steps through all these stories and tells you the conclusion you were supposed to make from those stories. And some of these stories are kind of absurd, right? But he tells you what the conclusion he wants you to make at the end of the chapter verse 39 and all these though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since God has provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect so we need them they need us they went through all the things that he put them through so that we would have something to learn from how is it fair what he did to Job? Job didn't do anything wrong. But God had in mind creating this story that we could all learn from. So we have to complete the circle. But the point was, where's the verse in Hebrews 11 where it says this is what the ancients were commended for? It's verse 2. 
So now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. In the NIV it says, I think that's what the ancients were commended for. But that's what it's saying. What does it say in the King James? Hebrews 11, verse 2. I'm just curious. The elders obtained the good report. So that's the same thing. That's what the ancients were commended for. They were commended for their faith. And so faith is not just believing. Back to James 2 again, right? It's not just believing, but the believing and the following. That's the faith of the Bible. And how are you going to know what to follow? Well, you got to find out. you got to find out what God wants. And then that's the other part of the lesson. Where has God put his instructions? In the Bible. They can't, they can't see your hand. <laughs> Sorry, I won't put an obstacle. Hand gestures for radio. <laughs> and that's the other part of it. That this is the word of God and something else isn't. That's a whole nother discussion. But let's say we accept that the Bible is the word of God, then that's where you're going to find out this information. If Jesus is coming back and you're going to be judged by the words in this book, then you want to familiarize yourself pretty well with what this book says. The title of this podcast is Believe and Follow. The title represents an important spiritual concept. Just accepting that God exists is not enough to be accepted by God. Our acceptance must be accompanied by a commitment to walk with God. In other words, to follow his instructions. Scripture is extremely clear that this is what God is looking for in each of us. Now some people think the deal is that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. This is not exactly right. God's word tells us that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and those who have walked with him in this life will be welcomed there with him in the next life. Those who do not, well, you're on your own. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have a clue beyond what God has told me about eternity. And God has made it clear that the alternative to accepting his gracious invitation is unspeakably unpleasant. I have no choice but to follow his lead. This would not be a concern if our physical death is the end of the road, but scripture tells us this is very much not so, and each of us must be prepared for eternity. The only way to do that is to believe God and follow his instructions. If you need some help with this, or if you disagree, email me at james at believeandfollow.org and let's talk. Till next time, goodbye and God bless. The love of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true. All together, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold.